The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. How did you get here? Have you ever wondered how you wound up where you are in life, where you live, what you do for a living, whom you're married to? It's a cosmic question. How did I get here? How do seemingly random events and apparent free will decisions get us from point A to point B? Or rather, from point A to point C, what stops at every letter in between? I have often pondered the what-ifs in my own life. In fact, the way past events can be traced to reveal causes of future events has always intrigued me. Think about it. How one single insignificant event can drastically affect the course of the future. A missed train, a lost key... A canceled flight? What if I hadn't missed the train, lost that key, or took that flight? This has led to my interest in the topic of time travel in literature and in film, specifically traveling back in time in order to change the future. And what's always the warning to time travelers? Well, first of all, it's always don't run into your younger self or else the universe will explode or implode or something like that. But the second warning is always against tampering with the past because you might end up changing the future, and usually not for the better. It usually goes like something like this. Person A goes back in time. Person A saves person B from being killed. Person A returns to the present only to be shocked that he completely altered it. He'd hoped that the world was going to be basically the same with the exception of person B being saved, but in reality, he had unwittingly altered the entire course of history. Person A, what have you done? In the 1952 short story, A Sound of Thunder by American author Ray Bradbury, raise your hand if you've ever read that story or heard of it. Okay, it may ring a bell as I describe it. In this story, there's a group of men who travel back in time 66 million years on a sort of Jurassic safari in order to hunt and kill a Tyrannosaurus rex. The safari tour guide warns the travelers to stay on a floating path that they provide in order to not disrupt the primitive environment. Apparently, the dinosaur was supposed to to die that day anyway, and so killing it would not change the future. In fact, they always go back to the same day and do the same hunt. Well, as the story goes, one of the hunters gets startled and falls off of the levitating path into the brush. Upon returning to the present time, he notices some minor changes in the world. For one, words are spelled differently. They're pronounced a little bit oddly, and people are acting strangely. The man also discovers that a recent recent presidential election has gone the other way than he remembered it. In fact, now a fascist president is in office. Nervously, the man looks down at his boots, the ones he was wearing on the safari, and there he notices that encased in mud on the bottom of his boot was a crushed butterfly. He accidentally stepped on it and killed it 66 million years before. And its death apparently affected the course of history so much over millions and millions of years that the man's present reality was completely changed. This is a version of what's known as the butterfly effect. Basically, small actions may have large consequences. 
It's like a butterfly's flapping wings creating a gentle wind on one side of the world that develops into a hurricane on the other side of the world. That's known as the butterfly effect. In both Ray Bradbury's story and my story, we see the butterfly effect in action. Tiny, seemingly meaningless events can set the future on a trajectory, and any changes along the way can alter that trajectory, resulting in a vastly different future. Now, as Bible-believing Christians who serve a sovereign God, we all know that time traveling is baloney, right? It's nonsense. can't happen. We know and serve a God who has ordered the end from the beginning, and we have complete confidence that his purposes will stand. There's no way to travel back in time and change the future, even if you do own a silver DeLorean. (laughs) I had to throw that in. So even though I'm very interested in the subject, time traveling, the time traveling parts of my introduction are purely fiction. The changing of the future is only fantasy. Please hear me. The future has been established by the Lord. Amen? However, the part that does ring true is the fact that the Lord, in accomplishing his will, uses means to arrive at his ends. Millions of them. In other words, the death of the butterfly in the story would have needed to happen in order to bring about the next event and the next and the next, leading up to the end that God had desired all along. In my life, there's clear evidence of this. Take my salvation as an example, which is the most important event that can happen to any person. Amen? Let's go back in time to just under 30 years ago. 27 years ago, in fact, June 27th, 1992, to my high school graduation. And we're going to quickly trace key events leading up to my standing here behind this pulpit to bring this message to you this morning, June 30th, 2019. I'm going to frame it using terms like ifs and thens. For instance, if not for this, then that wouldn't have happened. Okay, here we go. 1992. If Berklee College of Music in Boston didn't cost so darn much, then I wouldn't have had to stay on Long Island and go to Queens College. And if I didn't have to stay on Long Island to go to Queens College, then I would never have met a young man named Alec. And if I didn't meet a young man named Alec, then I would not have heard the gospel for the first time. At the same time, if I didn't have to stay on Long Island, then I wouldn't have worked at Wallbaums. Remember Wallbaums? And if I didn't work at Waldbaum's, then I wouldn't have met an old man named Paul. And if I didn't meet an old man named Paul, then I wouldn't have heard a second witness to the gospel. And if I didn't hear the gospel, then I would not have been saved. And if I do not get saved, then I do not attend the Hicksville Christian Church. And if I don't attend the Hicksville Christian Church, then I don't encounter false teaching on demonology. And if I don't encounter false teaching on demonology, then I don't read a letter from a young man named Peter refuting the false teaching on demonology. And if I don't read a letter from a young man named Peter refuting the false teaching on demonology, then I don't explore the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And if I don't explore the doctrine of God's sovereignty, then I don't become a Calvinist. And if I don't become a Calvinist, then I don't leave the Hicksville Christian Church for North Shore Baptist Church. And if I don't leave the Hicksville Christian Church for North Shore Baptist Church, then I don't meet Heidi, my wife, and I don't meet Heidi, my wife, then I'll never be happy. (laughs) But if I don't 
join North Shore Baptist, then I don't meet Caleb Bunch and Steve Schultz. And if I don't meet Caleb Bunch and Steve Schultz, then I don't leave North Shore Baptist Church to plant Redeeming Grace Fellowship. And if I don't leave North Shore Baptist Church to plant Redeeming Grace Fellowship, then I'm not here to prepare and preach this sermon on Genesis 39 right now behind this pulpit. Do you see? You see, 27 years ago, my not being able to afford the high tuition of Berklee College of Music set me on a course leading me right here today. And my lack of tuition money in the 1990s can be traced back to my parents' financial hardships in the 1980s, which can be traced further back to my father losing his job to a computer in the 1970s, etc., etc. You see, there are millions more ifs and thens to my story, and I'm sure to your story as well. How do we get here? Now imagine you're Joseph, the son of Jacob, and you're standing in front of your brothers as they're cowering before you in fear. Why? Because right now you're second in command to the mighty Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And as Joseph, you step back before speaking and ask yourself, how did I get here? You're about to calm their hearts by uttering the famous words of Genesis 50:20. You, my brothers, what you meant to me for evil, God meant it for good. You see, you know that now. You know that your brother's sinful acts were instrumental in God saving Israel from the seven-year famine. And we know the journey to Genesis 50-20 needs to start somewhere. Two weeks ago, Pastor Caleb set the stage in his message on Genesis 37. And now, this morning, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39 as we quickly review the setting, and then, brothers and sisters, please be ready to discover the many ifs, thens, and the multiple butterflies that were stepped on in order to take us to Genesis chapter 50. The sermon title is Ifs, Thens, and Butterflies. You've all heard the phrase, no ifs, ands, or buts. Well, this message is entitled Ifs, Thens, and Butterflies. Ladies and gentlemen, Genesis 39 is one of the most striking examples of the Lord's sovereignty in all of the Bible. In the story of Joseph, we see God molding and sculpting the mosaic of Israel's history and, more importantly, salvific history. In chapter 37, we saw Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons, being despised and hated by his brothers. We learn that Jacob clearly favored Joseph taking him away from hard toiling in the field and making him, in effect, an overseer over the other brothers. We learn that Jacob made him a robe of many colors. This probably signified some sort of authority over the others. Finally, we learn that Joseph had dreams, dreams that indicated that one day he would rule over his brothers and his parents. This not only angered his already jealous brothers, it even incited Jacob to exclaim in Genesis 37.10, Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come bow ourselves to the ground before you? So one day, when his brothers went out to labor in the fields, Jacob sent Joseph to them to bring back a report about how things were going. They spotted his technicolor dream coat sparkling in the sun, and they hatched a plan. Let's kill him, and let's throw him in a pit. Reuben, the eldest brother, talks them out of killing him in order to look like the good guy to his father. But while Reuben's away, his other brothers decide to throw him in the pit anyway, to put animal blood on his robe, and to sell him to the Midianites. Now, if you remember, that was Judah's idea. 
And for an excellent lesson comparing and contrasting Judah and Joseph, please listen to last week's message by Pastor Caleb on Genesis 38. So they sell him to the Midianites, and then they're going to tell his father that he'd been killed by a wild animal. So the Midianites take him. His brothers bring word back to Jacob, devastating him. And Joseph and we are brought down to Egypt, and we're sold to an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, a man named Potiphar. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it is true throughout all generations. We thank you that it's powerful to teach, to change, to equip us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who teaches us all things, who enlightens your word to your people. We ask this morning that he would open up our hearts and our minds to hear what you're teaching in your word. I pray, Father, that anything that I would say that is not in line with your word that I would not say. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would open up my mouth to speak your word and open up the people's ears to hear and their hearts to believe and that you give us feet to obey. We pray all these things in your precious son's name. Amen. So please draw your attention either in your own Bible or to the screen as I read Genesis 39, 1 to 6. Now, before I start, I'm going to divide the chapter into three parts. Verses 1 to 6 are going to be known as Potiphar's pal. Potiphar's pal. Point two, verses 6 to 19, is going to be the adulteress's assault. The adulteress's assault. And part three, verses 20 to 23, will be the warden's ward. The warden's ward. So Genesis 39, starting in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him... He had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Verse 2 says, the Lord was with Joseph. What exactly does that mean? Well, in order to get a clearer picture, let's do a brief, and I mean brief survey of some other passages that use the term, the Lord was with him. First, we have Judges 119, where it says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Next, we have Judges 218, where it says, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Next, we have 1 Samuel 319, where it says, And Samuel grew... And the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. First Samuel eighteen twelve to 14 reads, Saul was afraid because the Lord was with him, with David, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. 
Second Kings 18.7 says, And the Lord was with him, with Hezekiah. Whenever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Over in 1 Chronicles 9, verse 20, it says, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, was the chief officer over them. In time past, the Lord was with him. 2 Chronicles 17, 3 says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. And finally, in the New Testament, speaking of Jesus, it says in Luke five seventeen, On one of those days, as he was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So, we see that the Lord being with these people indicated that he was granting them success in whatever endeavors they were undertaking. Whether they were conquering Canaan, judging Israel, uttering prophecies, victory in battle, returning from exile, in governing the people, and even in healing and in miracles. They were all fulfilling the will of the Lord. But if you look closer into the lives of these men, most, if not all of them, experienced trials, pain, hardship, setbacks, and even death. The first Old Testament passage I quoted, Judges 1.19, mentions that the people of Judah took possession of the hill country, but not the plain. I ask you, was the Lord with them or not? Surely he was with them. The test explicitly says so. So we see that the Lord can be with someone even when they experience failure. Why? Because at that point in time, for reasons known only to God, his will for his people was apparent failure. And I say apparent because That event, no matter how difficult it may have been, was God's perfect will for that person at that time. And one needs only to view the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in order to understand that what appeared a colossal failure to the world was actually the most successful accomplishment possible for the world. The Lord was with Jesus, and he accomplished his Father's perfect will through trial, through pain, through hardship, and death and even the death of the cross. So keep those things in mind as we turn our attention back to Joseph, as we do point number one, Potiphar's pal. Verses one through six, we learn that Joseph was bought by Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Even so, the Lord was with him, so he became a success. How? Well, verse two says he was in the house of Potiphar, not working in the field, not making bricks like his descendants will one day have to make. There was no heavy yoke on Joseph's neck in Potiphar's house. Why? Because in verse 3, Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. So apparently, Joseph did spend some amount of time doing the back-breaking work of an Egyptian slave, and he did it well, and he excelled at it. And he proved himself extremely useful. So finding favor in Potiphar's sight, Joseph was moved into the house to attend to Potiphar as sort of a personal valet or a butler. And then as an overseer of his house, including overseeing the other servants, sound familiar? And also of all of Potiphar's possessions and his finances. And because of Joseph and for his sake, God blessed Potiphar 
in house and field. In other words, he blessed Potiphar in everything. So back to the text. In Genesis 39, verse 6, it says, So he, Potiphar, left all he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So get the picture. Joseph, favored by Jacob in Canaan, sold into slavery. Now Joseph, favored by Potiphar. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And this will further his God's perfect plan. And this plan will include what happens next. As verse 6 continues, it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now this is not something I can personally relate to, but he was handsome in form and appearance. And this leads to point number two, the adulteress's assault. Verse 7 reads, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Was this a temptation for Joseph? Possibly. If not physically, then maybe opportunistically. In other words, maybe giving in to Potiphar's wife would make his life even easier. Maybe he wasn't allowed a wife as a slave. We know as of yet he was not married. So maybe this was a pragmatic solution that was running through his mind. In fact, this opportunistic view is hinted at in Joseph's reply to her. But either way, let's hear what Joseph says and what he does. In verses 8 and 9 we read, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. In other words, ma'am, I control everything that goes on here. I'm in charge of it all. Everything Potiphar has is also mine. I have as much authority in this place as he does. I can play with his toys. I can use the master bathroom. I can even sit in his favorite recliner. All that he has is mine, except for you, because you are his wife. You see, being with her will not improve his life one bit. So even if he was tempted to make his life easier, he knew it wouldn't. He had everything he needed. But... He knew that giving in would only destroy his life, just like all sin. It promises happiness but delivers heartache. It promises pleasure but delivers pain. But Joseph doesn't stop there. At the end of verse 9, he rightly adds, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Amen and amen. You see, Joseph gets it. Far from home, in the middle of a foreign land, away from his family, away from Israel's father, Joseph gets it. Joseph gets that all sin is first and foremost sin against God. As David said, for I know my transgressions and my sins ever before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, Psalm 51. You see, King David sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Joab. He sinned against the nation of Israel. He sinned against the son that she bore him that would later die because of him. But he realized that most importantly, he sinned against his God. See, Joseph knew this too, generations before David knew it. He realized that all sin is vertical as well as horizontal. Let me say that again. All sin is vertical as well as horizontal. Whether or not Joseph was actually tempted, we do not know. But we do know that he took appropriate steps in the future to avoid sinning. 
we see in verse 10 that Potiphar's wife didn't stop propositioning him. We read, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Notice, number one, he would not listen to her. Number two, he would not get close to her. So here are two practical steps to avoid sin. Close your ears and eyes, stay away. Do not listen and flee. And Joseph, by God's grace, remains steadfast. Amen? Verses 11 and 12. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men in the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Okay. This physical assault, grabbing Joseph by his garment, was a satanic attack. It was. It was not an internal temptation. He wasn't, his heart wasn't bowing to sin, but it was a frantic last-ditch last effort by the devil to cause him to sin. This shameless example by Potiphar's wife of unrestrained lust of the flesh indicates that Joseph may have been in the habit of fleeing before at the enticements. He may have been so quick in the past to get out when she started to speak that she felt her only course of action was to grab him. So she did. But... He slipped out of whatever piece of garment that she grabbed, and he ran out of the house. Amen. He did the right thing. He fled for the temptation. All's going to be well. So let's pick up the story in verse 13. And as soon as she saw that, she had left his gar- that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant who you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, He left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Unbelievable. She cried, hashtag me too, but unfortunately she lied about the whole thing. She also blamed Potiphar for bringing Joseph in the house, not even showing either of them respect by using their names. Potiphar she referred to as he, and Joseph was that Hebrew slave. And if you think about the past, this is the second time a piece of Joseph's clothing was used to spread lies about him. First his brothers, and now Potiphar's wife. Now maybe, as I was studying Joseph, I mean, I was looking for things in his personality in Genesis 37. Maybe a case could be made in the first betrayal that he egged his brothers on by telling them his dreams. Maybe. Maybe bringing back the bad reports about his brothers to his father was, gave them cause. Maybe he was arrogant. We don't know. But this time, this time we know for a fact that Joseph was 100% blameless. He did the right thing. He didn't deserve this. Surely the Lord was with him and would not allow this terrible lie to stand. Surely the Lord would not allow a second betrayal. Surely the Lord would show Joseph's innocence and keep him from further trial, right? Verses 19 and 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. 
And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Here we go again. Joseph did the right thing. This just doesn't seem fair. He was righteous, and now look where he is. Now, even though all of you know where the story is going and where Joseph will eventually wind up many years from Genesis 39, please don't lose sight of the fact that Joseph, a real flesh and blood human being in Genesis 39:20, is now falsely imprisoned in an Egyptian prison, and he doesn't know what he's going to say in Genesis 50:20 yet. We do, but he doesn't. In his mind, I was betrayed by my brothers. I was sold as a slave. But things started to look better. I was promoted in Potiphar's house. I'm working in the house. I'm second in command. I'm not living the typical slave's life. This isn't so bad. I'm faced with the temptation to sin, and I resisted. And as a reward, now I'm in chains. Where is the Lord? Genesis 39:21 says, But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph when he was favored by Jacob in Canaan. The Lord was with Joseph in the pit in Dothan. The Lord was with Joseph in the Ishmaelite slave caravan. The Lord was with Joseph in the hard labor in Potiphar's fields. The Lord was with Joseph in the promotion in Potiphar's house. The Lord was with Joseph in the temptation and the false accusation by Potiphar's wife. And the Lord was with Joseph in the king's prison. The Lord was with Joseph. And that leads us to point number three, the warden's ward, verses 20 to 23. Before we look into these final verses, I need to mention that just the fact that Joseph wasn't executed for attempted rape was evidence of God's favor upon him. Under most accounts, the death penalty would have been the prescribed punishment for rape in the ancient world. But Joseph winds up in chains, which is better than death, I would think. And as a side note, commentators speculate, they speculate, that Potiphar may have been the executioner, the man responsible for carrying out capital punishment. How ironic. And so some scholars say that Potiphar may not have completely believed his wife's story, sparing Joseph from death. Who knows? But what we do know is that Joseph is now in the king's prison, but that's very important. He's not in any old prison. He's in the king's prison, which is exactly where he needs to be for what needs to occur in the preceding chapters. So he's in the king's prison, and who's with him? The Lord is there with him. Once again, we see the Lord gave Joseph favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison, the warden. And in time, we don't know how long, verses 22 and 23 tell us that the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did... The Lord made it succeed. Do you ever hear the expression, you can't keep a good man down? Well, in this case, it's true. 
But it's even more accurate to use Nebuchadnezzar's quote, the king of Babylon, when he said in Daniel 4.35, he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You see, brothers and sisters, it was God's will that Joseph go to prison. It was. And that in that prison, he would be promoted. He would be put in charge of the other prisoners, sort of like a prison overseer. Sound familiar? Again, probably keeping him from the more hard labor that prisoners would probably have to perform. Now the prison still wouldn't be a pleasant place. I mean, next week we're going to read in Genesis 41 that, that the prison is also called the pit. So he's not in, in the Holiday Inn. I mean, he's, he's in prison. But we do know that Joseph essentially ended up working at the prison, as in he had authority there, as he had authority in Potiphar's house, and as he had authority back home in Canaan. So this sets the stage for next week's message on Genesis 40 and 41, which deals with what happens with Joseph in the king's prison. We know who he meets there. He meets the chief baker and the cupbearer to the king. We know they both dream and that Joseph is going to interpret their dreams. I'll save the specifics for Pastor Caleb, but I want to revisit what I said at the outset, that Genesis 39, and in fact the whole story of Jacob, which will end all the way at the end of Genesis, is one of the most striking examples of God's sovereignty in all the Bible. Joseph in Genesis 37 was in Canaan. He needed to go to Egypt. Why? In order to provide food for his family during the seven-year famine that was coming in a number of years. Ifs, thens, and butterflies. If Joseph's brothers didn't sell him, then he wouldn't have had to meet Potiphar's wife. And if he never met Potiphar's wife, then he wouldn't have been thrown in the king's prison. And if he was never thrown in the king's prison, then he wouldn't have met the cupbearer. And if he never met the cupbearer, then he would never have met Pharaoh. And if he never met Pharaoh, then he would never have been put in charge of Egypt's storehouses. Do you see? But this isn't random coincidence. This is an unlucky chance. There was a sovereign hand behind all this, ordaining whatever came to pass. You see, God meant Joseph's brother's sin in selling him in order to take him to Egypt. And God meant Potiphar's wife's sin in putting him in the king's prison in order to have him meet the baker and cupbearer. And God meant for him to be ready and able to meet Pharaoh in order to interpret his dream. And God meant all the promotions in Potiphar's house, in the king's prison, and in Pharaoh's court. And God meant this in order for Joseph to be trained up and equipped to see Egypt and Israel safely through the famine. And by preserving Israel, and specifically Judah's line, the one whose idea it was to sell him in the first place, we have David. And through David, we have Christ. We have Christ. And that's what this is all about. We have Christ, who came to earth and lived a perfect life for sinners. He lived a perfect life, but like Joseph, he was betrayed. He was sent to the cross. False accusations. Kangaroo court. And he went to the cross and died, paying for the sins of his people. But he didn't stay dead. The Lord was with him. 
And three days later, he rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven. And now he sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for his people. And he will come again to take us to be with him. This can be all interesting about Joseph. I'm really intrigued by the way God orchestrates things, but mainly it's about the gospel. So this morning, you could be interested in time travel and this other stuff I'm talking about. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, please, in your heart, cry out to him. Ask him to save you. Whether you're more like Joseph or more like Judah, we're all sinners. Whether you're like Potiphar's wife or like the cupbearer, we're all sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what we need to do is put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ knowing that we cannot save ourselves. Even Joseph, righteous Joseph, needed a Savior, and that Savior was Jesus Christ. So we know in this text that the Lord was with Joseph. In the story of Joseph, we see God molding and sculpting the mosaic of Israel's history, and as I've just indicated, in salvific history. So in conclusion, before I give two brief points of application, I want you to consider the phrase, the Lord is with Joseph, and I want you to equate the Lord being with someone as success. But I want you to understand that success doesn't often equal a pain-free life. Success doesn't often equal getting everything you want. Success doesn't always equal resisting temptation and getting reward right now for resisting. The Lord being with you will bring you success always, but that doesn't always equal ease. The story of Joseph alone makes that fact abundantly clear. Even in slavery, even in prison, even in trial, even in tribulation, God is ordering all events. God is directing history. God is leading his people. God is with his people. Keep that in mind and notice what it says in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. See what it has to say about the Lord's providential hand in the suffering and death of his saints. It says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Oh, my. Wait, your brothers still need to be killed. Who's saying that? The Lord is saying that. He is sovereign. He's ordered all things, even the death of his people. But we know that the death of his people is precious in his sight. Psalm 116, 15. The Lord is with his people. In peaks and in valleys, in light and in darkness, when we're favored and promoted, the Lord is with us. When we're sold into slavery, the Lord is with us. When we're favored and promoted with our masters, the Lord is with us. When we're falsely accused, the Lord is with us. When we're thrown in jail, the Lord is with us. When we're favored and promoted in jail, the Lord is with us. When we're martyred for Christ, the Lord is with us. It's easy to see Joseph's story as just as, me, as a means to an end this morning. Just another butterfly to be stepped on. Joseph goes to Egypt and he saves Israel from the famine. We knew that. But if that's all we take away from it, we're missing the point. 
there are practical applications to be made for us right here. Application number one, acknowledge and apply God's sovereignty and complete control over all your circumstances. Let me say that again. Acknowledge and apply God's sovereignty and complete control over all your circumstances. This is not easy to do. It's not easy to do. Joseph really suffered in that pit, on the slavery cart, and in prison. Joseph probably didn't know the end result of his sufferings while he was experiencing them. But his statement to his brothers in Genesis 50-20 shows at the end he definitely knew. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, God meant Joseph's brother's evil for good. He meant it for good. Just like Paul says in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, Joseph's story and all biblical stories are written down on our account, 1 Corinthians 10.6, so we learn from them. So now we can be sure that God's working in our suffering. He's not surprised. He's in complete control. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean we cannot ask him to remove the suffering. I mean, Moses did in Deuteronomy 3.23 when he begged the Lord to go into the promised land, and he said, nope, and he asked him again, and he said, no. Paul definitely begged him in 2 Corinthians 12 when he had the thorn in his flesh. He's like, please remove it. And the Lord said, no. And even the Lord Jesus did in Matthew 26, 39, when he asked about the cup of God's wrath being passed from him. But what we need to learn from that is we need to end our prayer the way the Lord Jesus ended his prayer by saying, not my will be done, but yours. So number one is acknowledge and apply God's sovereignty and complete control over all your circumstances. And this leads us into our second point of application, which is when suffering, ask the Lord these things. What are you teaching me? What do I need to learn? What do I need to change? What do I need to stop doing? What do I need to start doing? When suffering, ask the Lord, what are you teaching me? What do I need to learn? What do I need to change? What do I need to stop doing? And what do I need to start doing? Maybe it's as simple as learning to practice patience. You're always in the situation that causes you, doesn't cause you because you cause yourself to sin, but encourages your sin. Why are you always in that situation? Maybe you lack patience. You need to practice it in that situation. Or maybe letting go of self-sufficiency. I can take care of myself. Maybe you're suffering so you learn to lean on your brothers and sisters. See, James 1 extols the benefits of trials, and Hebrews 12 tells us that God's discipline yields fruit. So we see that like Joseph, our trials train us for life, ministry, and for heaven. It even says in Hebrews 5.8 that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. It says, although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In Joseph's case, we know his hardships and experience managing Potiphar's house and the king's prison trained and equipped him to manage Pharaoh's Egypt, making business decisions, 
preparations for the impending famine. So when we are tried, ask God for wisdom and for endurance. Now, we may not be used of God in such a major way as Joseph was. I mean, at the outset, I gave you my path to leading here. I know I'm not Peter preaching at Pentecost. It's not that important. Maybe we won't be used the way Joseph was, but we all have a part to play. We're all butterflies in this. We just don't know what that part is yet. So seek godly counsel during trials. Seek his written word during tribulations. Seek him directly in prayer. Know that if you are his child, then he is with you. Ifs, thens, and butterflies. Say with David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod, your rod, rod of discipline. They lead and comfort us. And finally, remember the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 28, 20, when he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord is with us, and may the Lord be with you this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word, to study the life of Joseph, knowing that he had it tough, knowing that he had it rough, knowing that he suffered greatly. But we know how you used him and how you sustained him and how you built him up and how you granted him success, how you were with him. We thank you that he is a type of Christ, that he's a model, that we see Christ in him. But more importantly, we thank you that we know Christ personally that we know that your son suffered and died for our sins. Lord, I pray that this morning we may take the information that was given and we may apply it to our lives. I pray as we're suffered, as, as we suffer, that you would give us grace to endure. I pray that you would teach us what you'd have us learn. I pray if it be your will right now that you remove your gentle hand of chastisement from people in the congregation that are suffering. If it be your will that you would remove the pain right now that you will remove whatever situation is holding us down. But, Lord, we do pray that your will be done, not ours. So if you're leading us in a way that will give you glory and that will be good and edifying for us in the church, we thank you for that. Again, I ask that you be with us, and we pray that this message and that the applying of it will be glorifying to you. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.